Morning. It's so encouraging to see so many more brethren here this morning. Um, it's really encouraging just to be able to sing together again, despite how uncomfortable it is with the masks on. And to sing such a song like, uh, you know, as well with my soul and the circumstances we're marching to Zion. Uh, there's just a way that singing and affirming these things to each other so passionately, so strongly, is, is just so uniquely emboldening. It's so encouraging to be able to be together again and just to get used to seeing each other face to face, even if it's a little bit different and still limited in some ways, it's still such a joy. Um, so I've chosen to uh, teach again on Ephesians 4, uh, kind of our teaching theme for the year. Um, you know, I keep thinking that during these circumstances, uh, being reminded of our mission and our purpose together is just so important and so helpful, so edifying. And it's really been helping me um, to maintain uh, a, sense of, a sense of purpose that um, really instigates a need for self-control in the circumstances to focus on the mission of God. So in Ephesians 4, we've been talking about what it means to walk worthy of our calling. And just to kind of put back into all of our minds uh, what, what, what that really means, a calling by definition is something that gives us a sense of purpose. Uh, when we understand a calling, it helps us to understand the direction of our life. It helps us to understand what kind of impact we're able to have on the world around us. And really, the, 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 the fulfillment of everything that a calling is in the world is, 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 is in God's calling in his kingdom with his church. So we've been looking progressively at the call to unity so far, all the way through verse 16 in Ephesians 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 13 with how we're equipped to attain to unity. But just to remind us that we're called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've, we've uh, received together. And I think if you think about it kind of like a marriage, there's a way where we are called to maintain what we've obtained already. And that's really verses 1 through 3, where we've received unity in the Spirit. And we need to be diligent to maintain that unity that we've already received. But in the verses we're going to be looking at today, we're going to look at how we're equipped to grow in that unity, to grow in the fullness of that unity, and to attain to everything that we can together in the love of God and in his purpose for the church here. So I'm going to read verses 11 through 13 of Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to start by looking just verse by verse at each of the points here. And the first point, as you'll see on the board, is how we're equipped by teaching and leaders who are teaching to attain to the unity that's talked about in verse 12 and 13. Uh, so Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And so we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So in verses 9 through 10, we looked at last week how Jesus, in his victory over sin and over the devil, uh, he gave gifts to people. And in verse 7, each of us has received grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So it's not as if leaders are the only people who are equipped by the grace of God. And in fact, we're going to see in verse 12 that leaders are really just helping people understand how to use the grace and how to embrace the grace that they've been given individually that's intended for use in serving others. Maybe a basic way to think about this, I have a friend in Minnesota who graduated with an engineering degree. 
And one of the jobs that he had after he graduated, he worked on designing fire trucks. And everything that firefighters used when they would go out and they would do their job, he's the one who actually made sure it worked correctly and could function properly. So in a sense, he's equipping those people to do their job. Now, visibly, in the grand scheme of things, when the firefighters perform their work, who are the people who are really the heroes, right? So my friend's name, his name was Sam. Is anybody going to remember Sam and the work that he did to make sure that everything that a firefighter used could work properly? No, they're not going to remember him, right? The people doing the work are the true heroes. And that's the same thing here. The goal is not just leadership. The goal is leadership who are able to equip the saints for the work, the work of serving that builds up the body. So we are equipped by teaching leaders. If you look at verse 11, you've got roles listed here as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Really the binding agent between all of these there's a common thread of leadership that's focused on teaching. Jesus gave as gifts leadership that teaches. And just think about this. How important is good teaching and good leadership, godly leadership, if just in this one verse that Jesus gave as gifts five different roles of leadership that are all rooted in a need for teaching? How much do we need teaching if there are five different roles that are all designed to teach people how to serve and how to grow? So the first principle is we must develop godly leadership here that is rooted in Christ and sound doctrine. It is a necessity to develop this quality of leadership. We're going to talk later about how we need to have as an anthem or as banners things that God has set up and held high for us to pursue. And one of the key things that's essential for a local church is the development of godly leadership rooted in Christ and sound doctrine. Look at Paul's instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and there's just a couple of things I want to briefly look at with the exhortation that Timothy was given in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Really, the, the two things that I want to look at with 2 Timothy chapter 2 here is how godly leadership needs to have self-control and endurance. Self-control and endurance. And this is just a, a, an essential part of our loyalty to Christ. So we need teachers, but these teachers need to be men who understand self-control and endurance. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive a share of the crops. Consider what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it in eternal glory. So, 
these two things, self-control and endurance, the willingness to endure tribulation and suffering as qualities of a teacher. Um, with how much difficulty is involved in godliness and sound teaching, why would anybody want to teach if it requires enduring so much hardship like Timothy was being encouraged here? Again, there's two things I think that really make a teacher willing to teach in the first place. We've had some teachers here. Uh, Marie is a teacher. Uh, Miss Joanne uh, has been a teacher in the past. And Suzanne, who recently moved with Michael, uh, Suzanne was a teacher and has, well, is a teacher and has been a teacher. And uh, Suzanne, particularly, um, when I would talk with Mike and Suzanne, Suzanne's teaching environment was very difficult. And oftentimes when people get involved in teaching, they get involved in environments where the students are very difficult to teach, either for behavioral reasons, lack of interest, or just the difficulty of communicating the information that it can be understood and applied on an individual basis and not just go over a person's head. Two things that I think make somebody passionate to want to teach is seeing the value of learning and teaching and seeing the value of the people that are being taught. So a lot of times somebody getting involved in teaching students, especially if it's troubled students, is not just the value of the teaching, but it's understanding the value of the students who will be doing the learning. So for instance, I know of one uh, brother, recently read about him reflecting on some of his teaching experience. It was a post on Facebook that he had made. And he mentioned that at one point in his past when he was beginning to teach high school, he didn't really understand what the purpose of his class was. And so he asked somebody higher than him, like, what am I supposed to be teaching? And they told him, it doesn't really matter. These kids aren't going to learn anyway. They don't want to learn. So whatever you teach, it, doesn't, it just doesn't even matter. And him being a Christian, that really bothered him for them to just say, like, just don't even worry about it. And so he really tried to ensure that he was actually teaching them valuable information. And what he discovered is they wanted to learn. And they were eager about learning, but it was difficult, right? And what people didn't want to do, they didn't want to endure the difficulty of reaching the kind of, um, reaching the attention of the kids and reaching the hearts of the kids as he was interested and willing to do it. So he was willing to endure hardship, not only because he understood the value of teaching, but the value of the students as well. Um, so with how that encourages self-control, look at verse 3 and 4. He encourages Timothy to endure hardship with him. And he says, No soldier entangles himself in everyday life so that he can please the person who enlisted him. So we need to be careful with how far we're extending our sphere of focus. Something right now that I had to talk to Eva about just uh, yesterday and the day before that, there's a lot of crazy things going on in the world, right? And you notice if you turn on something like Facebook for too long or the news for too long, it can be tempting to get swept into things that you actually have no power and no control over. Things that you can actually not in any way impact. And when you get frustrated over those things and when you try to have an impact on those things, that feeling of powerlessness is only going to instigate even more frustration. So you notice the focus that he gives to Timothy is in verse 4, Focus where God has given you a sphere to make an impact. Focus right in front of you, just like a soldier is not entangling himself in all the peripheral things in everyday life as common people. A soldier is focused on his mission. And so he encourages Timothy, who seems discouraged at the time of this letter, 
Focus on God's mission. Reevaluate your priorities. Reevaluate where you are putting your focus. We need to continuously pull in our focus when we notice it going outside of the mission of God so that we can work on edification in the way that God called. But with the value of the student in the teaching, look at verse 10. Paul says he's willing to endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. So there's one. He sees that these are people chosen by God. Remember last week with verse 7 through 10, when, when Paul reflects on that quotation from Psalm 68, and he recognizes that God had to go to war to win his people, that God had to conquer the dominion of Satan in a very real, risky, costly way. And the citizens of his kingdom are people who have been won at a great cost. And they're people who have been taken by God who were once prisoners in the domain of darkness. So there's a need to learn things about God's kingdom that weren't understood before. There's a need to learn things about godly living that weren't applied before. And so Paul's encouraging a perspective that helps us to have compassion on each other. The last point I want to tie with 2 Samuel 23 with this is we need to learn in teaching and the leadership that's, need, that's needed with this quality of teaching, we need to learn with endurance and suffering to not take offense or give offense. Turn to 2 Samuel 23. We need to be more like David's mighty men, having a sense of resolve in understanding how God's power is exercised in protecting what belongs to him. Teaching protects us. Teaching keeps us safe in sound doctrine. It helps us to continue to see the value of God's work and the value of God's people. And what we need, we need men who understand the value of protecting God's people, even when it's difficult. We need men who are not going to back down and withdraw from the work of God when things get difficult. We need men who are not going to take offense when brethren say things or do things that are inconsiderate or unkind or ungrateful, but are still going to press forward to teach and to serve and to love. Second Samuel 23, verses 8 through 10. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshebashebeth, a Tecmanite, chief of the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because of the 800 slain by him at one time. And after him was Eleazar the son of Dodo the Ahohite, one of three mighty men which David with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle and the men of Israel had withdrawn. He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to strip the slain. Now after him was Shammah the son of Agi, a Hararite. And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils and the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot defended it and struck the Philistines and the Lord brought about a great victory. So the two main illustrations here, the, the narratives, there's really something that, 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 that is both uh, in both of the instances here is that these men stood when everybody else had withdrawn and they had surrendered and fled away from God's territory. You know, in verse 11, uh, this uh, Shama, the son of Agi, He's defending a plot of ground with lentils. You have to think, like, why is a ground of lentils worth risking your life and defending to all of these Philistines? It's God's territory. You imagine him thinking, this belongs to God. 
This is somebody's inheritance. Somebody who belongs to God, this is their land. This does not belong to the enemies of God. This isn't their right to take this, and God is going to help me defend this land from the enemies of God. We need men here who, despite appearances of however we may look by appearance or wherever we may be in the condition of our faith, will not back down from the attack of Satan to try to own the territory of God, but will stand ground with sound doctrine and in love, even when it's difficult, like Paul is urging Timothy, to stand strong for the people of God so that they can inherit salvation. Each of us, every one of us, belong to God. We are his territory. We need men who value that enough to engage in the work of teaching and service. So we're also equipped for the work of ministry because ultimately that's the goal of teaching. And I want to look at a contrast in 2 Timothy chapter 3 if you want to turn in your Bibles there. Uh, So in Ephesians 4 verse 12, he mentioned that these teachers are equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So again, like Sam, my friend from Minnesota, who's designing things for fire trucks that they can do their job, ultimately what we're doing here and why teaching is so valuable is because it equips us for the mission and the calling of God, even on an individual basis. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, The first seven chapters, or the first seven verses, rather, I want to notice something about what this is talking about that I think is very easy to overlook, and I think it, it hurts the point of the context when we miss what is being focused on in verses 1 through 7. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is involved with how God's word is meant to equip us for his work. Verses 1 through 7. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the question is, what does it mean? Like, how, how are they learning, but they're never, ever, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth? When I was in college, uh, I found out that there are people who will spend money on college classes, like large amounts of money, and they'll go to these classes and they'll, 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 they'll take on themselves the burden of all the homework assignments involved. And they'll do that a lot of times, not because they're wanting to have any change in their life. They're not trying to get a job in the field. I found out that there's many people, they just enjoy learning. And they like being in an environment where they're learning. And not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but they're spending all of that money and all that time really not to accomplish anything. They just enjoy learning information all the time. And this is the same thing is when we're coming together, the goal is not just to enjoy learning information. When we're studying the Bible on Zoom on Sundays, we're not just enjoying the process of learning information academically. The mission of why we learn is because we want to grow in godly character. We want to live in a way that is more filled with the glory of God, that is more closely folded with the glory of the character of Jesus Christ. 
Like that song that we sing, sweet will of God, still fold me ever closer till I am wholly lost in thee. Look back at verse 4. Uh, I think this list of things, it's easy to think like, well, this is, maybe he's talking about how the world will be sometime after this writing. If you look at verse 4, he's not talking about the way the world would be. The, the world was always like this. He's speaking of those who are holding to a form of godliness and they're denying its power. So it's people who appear to be godly in, in some form, but they're not actually being transformed by the message. They're just like the world. And the appeal to Timothy is, as he seemed to be getting discouraged, you cannot be getting discouraged yet. The difficulty of how hard things are going to be in working with God's people has hardly even begun. What are you doing getting discouraged? We need fortitude, but we also need to be effective doers of the word. Teachers need to be the best learners and students. So verses 10 through 17, just notice how the the well-known passage in verse 15 and 16 is in the context of exhorting Timothy you need to treat God's word not as an academic exercise of just learning information. You need to understand that God's word in its totality is meant to lead you somewhere very specific. Look at verses 10 through 17. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And again, I think that's an allusion to the list that he just gave in the previous context. Verse 14. You, however, continue in the things which you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God's word is meant to equip us to be servants like Jesus in every context of our lives. God's word fuels effective, faithful service as friends of people in the world who need godly people in their life to care for them and show compassion toward them. Broken-hearted people in the world whose lives are filled with chaos and burdens need godly people to be aware enough of the healing power of the gospel to extend themselves into a circumstance that will demand sacrifice. God's word equips us to be husbands, to be wives, to be children, to be parents in a way that reflects the glory of the service of Christ. God's word equips us to be students at school. It equips us to be workers at work. God's word equips us even in our leisure time, at every part of our lives, to want to be fueled by God's word to understand how to think in a God-conscious way and to do things in a way that reflects the great grace and love of God. So we need to be effective doers to be effective teachers. And there's a predefined mission that God has set for our teaching. So I just want to talk a little bit more about that application before we go to that final point about our mission giving value to assembling and learning. It's going to be very difficult to cultivate in somebody a love of God's righteousness 
a craving for righteousness, if I'm not craving righteousness myself, it's going to be very difficult to help somebody see the glory of growing in godliness when it's going to mean suffering for that godliness if I'm not willing to grow and suffer for that growth myself. It's going to be very difficult to teach somebody else to receive compassion and mercy in time of need and temptation if I, in temptation, am not seeking compassion and mercy from God myself. It's going to be very difficult to explain the gospel in a way that leads to a broken and contrite heart if my heart is dull and calloused and uncaring for the suffering of Christ. So we need to learn first, be effective doers to be effective teachers. It's not an accident in the context that he spends this amount of time saying, Timothy, recognize the life you need to be living, and then in chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Again, don't just preach academics. Don't just preach information. When we're studying together, why is assembling so valuable? Why is it so valuable to come when we're assembling as normal at 9.30 to the hour of study before our worship service? Why is it so valuable to not just come when the Lord's Supper is being served and then leave? Because godly people recognize the value of opportunities to learn and grow. Godly people pursue the opportunities to learn and to grow. Godly people obsessively want to fuel godly living by learning things by the wisdom of God from his word from faithful teachers. So finally, we're equipped to attain to Christ's fullness. So in verse 13 of Ephesians 4, this is also that we can attain to the fullness of the measure and the stature which belongs to the fullness of the Son of God and the knowledge of his glory. And that's to attain to unity in that goal as well. So just something to consider. Ignorance and immaturity is more clearly a flaw to the mature, the educated, and the trained. Remember Ephesians 5, how he ends Ephesians 5 by saying, I've got things I want to teach you guys, but it's going to be really difficult because you're dull of hearing. And by this time you should have been teachers, but you're not. And you need to learn again the elementary principles of the oracle of God, and you have need of milk and not solid food. Because solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So the writer of the Hebrew letter, being somebody who is in the right mindset, was saying, we have a problem. Because you guys don't recognize the flaw in that you are actually going backwards and becoming ignorant and immature instead of allowing yourselves to be educated, trained, and matured by your tribulations. Think about Jesus with his disciples. Was it enough for the disciples to simply be with Jesus? When they committed themselves to following him, was that like the end goal and everything's now fulfilled? Jesus would even frequently teach that people who are satisfied simply being in the crowd in his presence wouldn't even be considered friends of God in the judgment. That they would say, well, you taught in our streets. We were right there with you. We ate food with you. And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the goal was not just to get them around Jesus, just as the goal is not just to be in the building. The goal is not just to hear the teaching. The goal is to be closer to the glory of God. The goal is to come to the unity of the faith, to a full measure of the knowledge of the Son of God. So think about this as well. When the disciples were with Jesus, 
Were they in unity? In one sense, they were. Right? They were with Jesus, and in that sense, they were in unity with him. They were around him, they were listening. But is there another sense where they weren't in unity with him? Constantly, Jesus would correct them, he would teach them, he would even rebuke them strongly, because Jesus was constantly trying to develop the unity they had because he was mature, educated, and trained. We need to see things from God's perspective. The application for this is our goals need to be God's goals. An appeal for this is we need less worldly tactics and more biblical anthems. And what I mean by that is in the world that there are many things that seem to work and sound great in the world. There's a lot of key and, 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 and uh, nice sounding phrases that get passed around, but we need less worldly wisdom. Less wisdom that sounds good on the surface, and what we need to do is hold up the anthems we see in Scripture. In the end of Ephesians 3, Paul mentions that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything that we can even ask, think, or imagine. And in Psalm 20, there's, I think, a really important way that the psalmist sees God's power in his will. The psalmist begins the psalm urging the reader to see that God is willing to act when we unite ourselves with his desires, when we pray to him in a way that's according to his will. And in verse 5 he says, we will sing for joy over your victory, and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So the psalmist is seeing God powerfully upholds his own, his own banners. And the idea of a banner is like, God has set an expectation that he said, this is what he's going to do. And if you flee to him and you seek refuge underneath that banner, what the psalmist is saying is God will not fail to do it. We need to flee for refuge under the banners of God. Now, this might seem strange, but I think there's a lesson we can take from Ezekiel chapter 40 in this. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles there, um, I'll just look at this very briefly. Um, it's a very large context. It's more the context of Ephesians 40 through verse 48. This is probably what seems to be the most boring aspect of any prophetic book. Ezekiel is taken in this vision to see this temple, this glorified temple not made with hands. And when he gets there, you've got about six or seven chapters of Ezekiel just being told measurements nonstop. So in verse 1 through, uh, 1 through 4, it mentions this is in the 25th year of our exile at the beginning of the year on the 10th of the month on the 14th year after the city was taken. That is Jerusalem as it's been desolated. The temple is gone. On that day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me there. In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain and on it to the south there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze and a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand and he was standing in the gateway. The man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes and hear with your ears and give attention to all that I'm going to show you. For you have been brought here in order to, in order to show it to you. Declare it. Declare to the house of Israel all that you see. So this angel progressively guides Ezekiel through this large temple complex, this glorified temple that would never be built but was a representation of new covenant glory of our relationship with God. And again, it seems very dry, it seems very boring. So 
just want you to think, why was Ezekiel so interested in this? I imagine Ezekiel this whole time is very captivated by this whole process. And obviously he could see it with his eyes, but he was told to declare it to the house of Israel. Why would this matter so much to him and to the people of Israel? Well, for one, Ezekiel was a priest of God and the temple was gone. And to a priest, the temple represented God's presence with his people, his favor for his people. To a priest, the temple was everything. And so you imagine for a priest to be guided measure by measure to this glorified, perfect temple, that would be everything to him. And to us, what seems like a dry reading to Ezekiel, this would have been the most glorious part of everything he experienced up to this point. And what seems to be so boring because he was so invested became something glorious. The disciples with Jesus Christ and the apostles. You know, Jesus teaching in parables, Jesus teaching commands that require sacrifice and humility, commands that make us vulnerable in our environments among the world. How is it we become earnest to want to measure those things out to the fullness of Christ when those things require sacrifice, when they require carrying more burdens, when we understand the glory of Christ? People from the outside who don't appreciate Jesus will not understand how obsessively, um, how obsessively focused we are on measuring every detail of Christ and his glory together. But just as Ezekiel was taken measure by measure through every part of the complex, we want to measure every command. We want every single person in God's kingdom to be presented to Christ complete. We want every person to be committed to God. We want every person to understand the teaching of Jesus Christ. We want to apply his teaching, even when it's simplistic in its appearance, even when it's quiet and meek in its appearance and its effect, even when it's thankless, and underappreciated because we see the glory. We are willing to measure things to their fullest extent. So, in attaining to the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 1 through 3, where Paul earnestly outlines the glory of everything God has done to those who belong to God and who love him, we want to measure the length, the height, the depth. We want to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then we'll become like the Apostle Paul, who told them not to lose heart at his tribulations, for they were for the glory of the Christians at Ephesus. So we're called to engage ourselves in the work of service, but it's all about seeing the fullness of the glory of the Son of God. The final question is, how close do you want to be with Jesus? And I really mean for you to ask that question to yourself. How close do you honestly really want to be with Jesus Christ? And does your earnestness to be close to him have any relation to his earnestness that he's shown to be close to you? How much do you want your life to be filled with his glory? Is it that you just want to do what's adequate and not sinful in your relationship with God? Or is it that you want to learn to do the best things to glorify the Lord? That you want to do the most joyful things in your service to God? and that you want to have your life overflowing with the glory of God. If our ambition is that, then we can have unity despite our diversity and even through that diversity as well. If there's anything that we can do for you at this time, if there's any encouragement or confession that needs to be made, any help we can give, 
please bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song. Jay, do the